Hi everyone, welcome to Reason with Science. I'm your host Jitendra. This episode is with Pavel Plevka. He is a research group leader at Central European Institute of Technology. His research is focused on solving the structures of viruses in order to understand their mechanism of action. For this conversation, I'm also joined by Anna Papa Georgiou, a friend and a colleague. Here we talk about general aspects of viruses, their genomes, evolution of viruses, their infection strategies, impact of viruses on human health, environment and agriculture. Enjoy the conversation, share and subscribe to support the podcast. Thank you for listening. Hi Pavel, welcome to the podcast. Hi Pavel, welcome. Hello. Yeah, so as a scientist who's been working in the field for many years now, let's start with something basic, a basic question like what is a virus and why do we study them? So uh, virus uh, is a form of life. Uh, there has two forms of existence. Uh, it exists as a virus particle, uh, which has like a compact shape. Uh, it has a protective surface layer and inside uh, it carries a genome, uh, the genetic information of the virus. And then uh, when it enters a cell, it causes infection and it uses resources of this cell to produce the virus progeny. Okay, so basically uh, also you say that like the building blocks of viruses are like the nucleic acid that it brings, the genetic material, which is being coated by capsid. And in, in some cases also there are like uh, extra somehow layers, extra membranes, but we will talk about all this later, right? Yes, absolutely. Okay. Yeah. So uh, interesting thing here is that, so when we think of viruses, there is a huge diversity uh, there. Um, starting with, we can simply start with what is the extreme uh, of viruses, like in, in terms of size? So, mm -hmm. so what are your comments here? So viruses uh, as a group are extremely variable, uh, as you said. So the <clears throat> smallest viruses will be uh, as small as uh, 30 nanometers in diameter. Uh, while the largest can exceed more than one micrometer. And uh, this uh, also defines like the huge range of uh, genetic material that they can carry. So the smallest viruses are extremely simple. They will uh, encode just a few proteins, like the capsid protein that forms the shell, and then a protein that enables replication of the virus genome. Uh, mm -hmm. While the most complex ones, they carry uh, hundreds of genes uh, that perform various functions, and they can be to some extent uh, independent of the cellular uh, metabolism of the cellular functions. And uh, your initial question was about the like variation in the type of genetic material. So uh, unlike the cellular organisms uh, who store their crucial genetic information in the form of DNA, uh, viruses can also use RNA and then they can use also various types of the RNA. So uh, it can be double-stranded or single-stranded, and the same goes for the DNA. And then when they uh, carry just the single strand, uh, it can be also positive and negative sense, uh, meaning that uh, it may, if it is the positive sense, it can directly serve as mRNA for protein synthesis, or it can be the negative strand that needs to be uh, copied into the complementary version before it can be used for protein synthesis. Okay, but, but then regarding the two extremes of the like viral size spectrum, for example, from one part we may have giant viruses and then from the other part we may have sub, sub, uh, how to say, sub viral agents like viroids or syn transfer agents. So could you a little bit introduce us to this kind of extremes? Mm -hmm. So <clears throat> there are uh, also like <laughs> forms, <laughs> let's say, of, of life uh, that are even simpler than viruses, um, which would be, for, for example, the uh, viroids uh, that you mentioned. So th these are uh, just small segments of RNA uh, that are able to uh, trick the RNA polymerase of a cell uh, to make copies uh, of themselves. So th these can often be found in plants that can, they can cause actually very uh, severe infections. And then um, if you look at this like infectious uh, agents, so sometimes uh, prions, like the proteins that can have uh, several conformations, one uh, that is functional for the cell and, and another one that is more stable and toxic and then uh, can trigger 
other proteins to adopt uh, its conformation uh, are also assigned to the infectious uh, agents somehow related to viruses. Um, okay, so despite that size somehow reigns, like even giant viruses, I think that they are at the absolute, uh, how to say, uh, limit of what can be visualized by a conventional light microscope, right? Uh, so given that limitation of size, how can we visualize viruses? What are basically the, the tools that you as a structural biologist uh, are using to study them? Mm -hmm. So indeed, uh, the largest viruses are about micrometer in size. So they can be uh, just barely detected using the light microscopy, uh, but definitely we cannot distinguish any details of their structure. Mm -hmm. So traditionally, uh, viruses are studied using electron microscopy, so uh, where you can comfortably see the virus particles. Uh, and to find details of their structure, uh, for a long time, the method of choice was uh, X-ray crystallography. Because the viruses, the particles has, have very regular structures, so they can actually form crystals and then can be analyzed using this technique. Uh, nowadays, with the development of cryo-electron microscopy, uh, it's definitely the method of choice to look at virus particles, uh, and it enables studies of even more complex viruses, like bacteriophages that combine the icosahedral symmetry of the head, and then they have a helical tail with some appendages. So this all can be studied very nicely uh, using uh, cryo-electron microscopy. Uh, and electron microscopy also enables us to look at the infected cells because the virus infection will induce reorganization of the infected cell. Uh, and we can observe uh, also the assembly of the new viruses inside cells. Mm -hmm. So as you already mentioned about the, the, about the size and shape of the viral particles, and there is a lot of variability there as well, right? Like all the viruses, they have a different shape or it can be different size as well. Um, mm -hmm. So what are the like different shapes there? If you can just introduce some of them and, uh, and some of the viral systems that you are studying, mm -hmm. how different so, they are? Yes. Uh, so besides the differences in the size, uh, there are uh, differences in their structure. And there is this like typical classification of viruses. Uh, so uh, the two basic types are uh, viruses that have icosahedral capsids and helical capsids. So um, these viruses, they use symmetry uh, to uh, be able to utilize like one type of protein to assemble uh, like complete shell that will protect the genome, which is uh, much bigger than the information it, uh, it encodes. Uh, so using icosahedral symmetry or helical symmetry with just one type of protein, the genome can be protected. And then there are some more uh, complex viruses, like uh, the mentioned bacteriophages, which can combine the icosahedral symmetry for the head and then helical symmetry for the tail. And also there are uh, the asymmetric viruses, uh, which are often membrane enveloped, uh, like the infamous uh, influenza or HIV or coronaviruses. Basically, that's like there is incredible variety, like from bacteriophages that they look somehow. If I if I can comment on that, like interplanetary probes, or you know, or like uh, some uh, virus like influenza that they are more or less spherical, or uh, how to say um, polyhedral viruses like adenoviruses, or even filamentous ones like Ebola. It's really, they are quite diverse in, in terms of like shapes and structures, uh, but like with such morphological somehow diversity, because you have already introduced us that there are, they, they do bring different genetic material, they are already, they do bring different structure shapes, they have different size. How, how do you classify, how do we classify viruses basically? Because I think mm -hmm. to study them, you need really a classification system, right? It, it helps mm -hmm. or maybe more, I don't know. So, so uh, traditionally there is this well-established Baltimore classification of viruses. Uh, that is based on the genome they contain. So uh, it's classified according to the type, whether it's uh, RNA or DNA, and whether it's single-stranded or double-stranded and positive or negative sense. Mm -hmm. And it also includes uh, these like reverse transcribing viruses, uh, the, which are known as uh, retroviruses, uh, that actually during their life cycle convert the genome from uh, DNA to RNA form and then back again. 
So one of the exciting things uh, about all the viruses is that the fact that they can infect their host, right? So let's mm -hmm. uh, let's start talking about that. That how do viruses uh, recognize their host, and how do uh, they infect them? Mm -hmm. So yeah, as as the viruses uh, differ a lot in their structures, and of course the hosts are also very different. So the hosts can be bacteria. Uh, algae, but also higher eukaryotes uh, like humans. Uh, so, so the viruses need very different approaches to be able to uh, to infect these cells. Uh, but there are uh, several like common topics. So uh, at, usually the viruses at their surface uh, are equipped with uh, proteins uh, that recognize uh, something from the surface of the host cell. So that, that's called a receptor. So initially the virus will bind to a receptor and then uh, this triggers some changes uh, in the virus particle or in the host cell. So in, in many cases, the host cell itself uh, engulfs the virus. There is this process called endocytosis uh, when the virus is delivered to the inside of the cell, but it's still enveloped by a membrane uh, that is derived from the cytoplasmatic membrane of the cell. And then the viruses need to somehow cross this membrane. And there are two um, major uh, groups of viruses that use different approaches. So when these are uh, enveloped viruses, uh, they will fuse the envelope from the virus particle with the endosome membrane, uh, and the content of the virus spills into the cytoplasm and then can trigger infection. When we have non-enveloped viruses, uh, they have to somehow induce disintegration of this uh, endosome membrane so that the virus particle can enter cytoplasm. And uh, yet another example, for example, uh, can be considered as the bacteriophages uh, that actually attach to the surface of bacteria. And then they somehow puncture a hole uh, through the bacterial cell wall and cell membrane and eject their genomes, just the double-stranded DNA genomes, into the bacteria to induce the infection. Yeah, just so that uh, people, they get a taste of it. I mean, I, I remember that you had those 3D models. Uh, if we maybe can just like show it and uh, you know people get can get an idea that okay how do how do those particles look <laughs> yes indeed <laughs> so i have uh, two examples here so the black one would be example of a bacteriophage so th this is a virus that would uh, bind to the bacterial surface uh, like this and then the tail would actually uh, extend a little bit through conformational changes and through addition of some proteins that are at the beginning inside of the phage head so it extends, then it crosses the bacterial uh, cell wall, and then the DNA that is stored inside the phage head, uh, they're under pressure, uh, it's uh, ejected into the bacteria. So this is a nice, uh, nice example of the delivery. And uh, this is another virus. So th this is actually a model of a virus that would infect honeybees. So these are like the higher uh, eukaryotes. And uh, we can observe in electron microscopes that uh, particles of this virus, they uh, attach to the surface of a cell, and then they are engulfed into the endosome, as I mentioned before. So they end up in a membrane-bound uh, vesicle. And then uh, the, the cell actually tears uh, apart the uh, endosome membrane, and the uh, virus particle is released into the cytoplasm, where the capsid cracks, uh, it opens like a Pac-Man uh, into two halves, and the genome from the inside uh, diffuses out into the cytoplasm. And these are uh, positive sense RNA viruses. So the, the RNA itself uh, can recruit the host ribosome uh, that will uh, start production of viral proteins. Um, okay, just to continue, like on what we were discussing slightly before. So you said, okay, the virus, it managed to infect the cell, so it's now in the cytoplasm. And you said that it triggers infection, right? So mm -hmm. what does it mean? What is coming next? Mm -hmm. So um, when, when the genetic information of the virus reaches the cytoplasm, and for some of the viruses, the genetic information needs to reach the cell nucleus. This is mm -hmm. typically for viruses that have DNA genomes. So then uh, the, <clears throat> the genetic information is... If it is DNA viruses, uh, it's uh, transcribed into RNA form mm -hmm. and then translated into proteins. And mostly the proteins execute the functions of the virus and the early, uh, early functions are to take control of the host cell. So in many cases, the viruses will shut down the host proteosynthesis 
or they will at least limit the uh, innate uh, immune responses of the cell so, so that they can uh, start taking over control of the cell mm-hmm. and um, sort of push forward production of additional viral proteins uh, that will enable replication of the viral genomes. And once sufficient number of the genomes are copied, uh, the, let's say, later f- phase of the infection uh, progresses when uh, the proteins that form the virus particles uh, are formed and uh, the assembly is initiated. So then uh, once the, like, for example, for the bacteriophages, uh, the capsid will form without the tail. Uh, the phage DNA is packaged into the uh, capsid uh, under high pressure, and then the tail is attached. For these uh, RNA viruses, uh, the uh, viral RNA will condense and then the uh, capsid assembles around it. Uh, and after this, uh, they are, the viruses have different strategies. So for example, the, the bacteriophages, they will induce lysis of the infected cell. So the, the cell basically bursts and many of the vi- viral progeny particles are released to the environment. Um, these uh, small RNA viruses, they either induce uh, lysis of the host cell or they are exocytosed in membrane vesicles. Uh, while other viruses, typically the membrane-bound vesicles, uh, viruses, they can bud from the membrane. Uh, and this way, the infected cell can survive for a long time, uh, still continuously producing the virus particles. Yeah, this is really fascinating that these tiny particles, like after all the struggle, they enter in a host cell and then, you know, they have to like kind of get everything synthesized and get assembled and then go out of the cell. Mm-hmm. Um, so how much of this mechanism we know? Well, so uh, as we started our discussion, so viruses are very diverse and some of them are better studied than others. And uh, because they are actually so different, even in the like molecular mechanisms of their uh, replication. So many things cannot be generalized from, uh, from virus to a virus. But of course, um, many viruses in particular, the like important human pathogens are studied in great, great detail. So we know many, many like molecular details, uh, how the viral proteins not only form the particles, but how they also interact with the host cell, how they take over control of the host cell. Uh, for other viruses that are less studied, we know close to nothing. Yeah. So it, did someone manage to kind of uh, study this assembly of the viral particles in in vitro setup, like uh, try to do it in Eppendorf? Are there any studies? Mm-hmm. So for some viruses, the assembly can be reproduced in vitro and you can form the particles uh, in, in an experimental tube. Uh, whereas for many other viruses, this cannot be reproduced. So the assembly is uh, essentially dependent on some cellular structures uh, that cannot easily be reproduced in vitro. So typically for, for bacteriophages, uh, the head assembly is initiated from the inner bacterial membrane. And this is difficult to reproduce. And just one small question here. So what about like viruses, like for example, influenza that they do bring uh, segmented nucleic acids, like they do bring, for example, eight pieces of nucleic acids that they need in the end to be assembled, you know, in the intact new uh, par- vir- virus, viral particle. H- how did they manage to, you know, mm-hmm. to do this? So, yes, so, so th- this is a very interesting question uh, because, uh, as you mentioned, uh, influenza has segmented uh, genome and to have productive uh, infection, uh, the cell needs to receive uh, like all the, all the segments. Mm-hmm. So we have this combinatorics problem uh, that the particle needs to pick up uh, all the different segments uh, to, to be infectious. So um, the viruses either can have a specific mechanism uh, where they recruit all the uh, genome segments into one particle, or you can have this variant that uh, there are actually multiple copies of, uh, of each segment. So this will increase the probability that um, each is represented at least once. Or uh, the viruses can also rely on the fact that um, to infect a cell, not only one virus particle will uh, enter, but multiple will enter. Um, So now, like at short time spans, viruses are usually uh, limited to infecting one uh, host species. 
but how do viruses cross this like species barrier and are able to jump from one host to another? How how do they manage? That? Mm -hmm. So yeah, uh, as as you mentioned, usually viruses are specific, and this jumping of the host barrier uh, is rare. Uh, and um, it, but it can be easier for, for some viruses. For, for example, for influenza, uh, that can be uh, made easier by uh, sort of combination of genome segments from different viruses. So in in rare cases, in rare unfortunate cases, uh, there can be a, like co-infection of one cell by two different viruses, and then these segments are reassorted, uh, which could uh, sort of expand the host range of uh, of the virus. And uh, these are the cases, for example, when uh, the influenza strain is called like a bird flu. So this would presumably uh, have some uh, proteins from uh, influenza that normally infect birds or, or the swine flu from uh, from viruses that infect pigs. Uh, for other viruses that have non-segmented genomes, uh, this uh, like crossing of the uh, species barrier uh, usually requires mutation. So if like let's say non-human uh, virus is to infect a human uh, usually the infection will be very inefficient but then uh, in the human body uh, some mutations of the virus uh, can occur uh, and they can be more efficient in infecting the human cells so, so basically in the infected uh, individual there will be this selection of the virus to adapt to be more efficient in infecting human cells and then if the virus uh, acquires favorable combination of mutations, uh, it can adapt uh, and establish itself as as new pathogen. Okay. And since you you, you were uh, talking about uh, genomes, um, I mean it's it's also interesting that nowadays in biology we talk a lot about information about genomes, what is there. So how much of this information about like how viral particles they do what they do like. Uh, how much of it is encoded in the genome or in the genes? What do you know? Viral genes they encode. So, what are the essential parts? So, uh, so, so the virus is defined by the uh, virus particle, and the shell, like the surface uh, of the virus, uh, of the simplest viruses, is formed by proteins. So, th this uh, this type of protein is encoded by the virus. And then uh, inside is the genetic information that needs to be uh, copied in the host cell. So the simplest viruses can uh, encode just the capsid protein uh, that will form the particle, and then the replicase that will ensure copying of the viral genome in the infected cell. So that, that would be just two, two genes. But um, many viruses uh, carry additional genes. So for example, the capsid can be more complex, like for the bacteriophage, it can be uh, made from many uh, different proteins. And also uh, inside the cell, uh, the viruses can take advantage of more functions than just copying its genome. So to take efficiently control over the host cell, uh, they can have multiple proteins that will, I don't know, degrade parts of the cell or alter the cellular functions. Yeah, um, and also like there are like a lot of viruses that they have an additional like layer covering the capsid. And this is usually like uh, like lipid layer, right? right? So uh, can you tell us about like the, the nature, the composition of this layer, and also like the origin of those basically membranes? From there, from where are they coming? Mm -hmm. So uh, indeed, so some uh, some virus particles can be covered like a like in a, in a bag by uh, by membrane layer. Uh, and this, this membrane um, is derived from a cellular membrane, but it can be from different parts of the cell. So some viruses, they will bud from the uh, cell membrane, so from the cell surface, but other viruses can bud into, for example, into endoplasmatic reticulum. So that's another source of the membrane. And besides uh, acquiring the membrane, uh, the viruses uh, also insert their own proteins into the membrane that covers the virus particle. So uh, it's the famous spike protein uh, of coronaviruses, for example, mm -hmm. that is embedded in the membrane and then uh, re recognizes the host cell. And uh, usually the viruses will include like several types of proteins into their membrane. And these proteins can be responsible for different functions. So it can be attachment 
uh, to the host cell, like recognition of the uh, surface features of the host cell, uh, but also this membrane fusion. So when the viruses are enveloped in the membrane, uh, they will deliver the content uh, of the of the virus particle uh, into the cell by uh, membrane fusion. So the membrane from the virus will fuse with the membrane from a cell, and the content spills into the cytoplasm. Mm -hmm. So the existence of membranes, it 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 just helps in the uh, in kind of the infection strategy, like in the endocytosis, then, right? Yes, so it, it helps with, with the uh, infection process, but also uh, in a way it makes the virus uh, vulnerable because the, the membrane will be sensitive to detergents, for example. So that's why the membrane envelope uh, viruses are relatively easier to, to destroy, uh, while those that have only the protein capsid, for example, they can dry out uh, and then still remain uh, quite infectious. Yeah, this is really fascinating. and. Uh... So, I mean, another thing that I remember is, uh, as Dobzhansky said, nothing makes sense in biology except in the light of evolution. So let's a little bit talk about evolutionary origins of virus. Mm -hmm. um, so were there only single origin or there were multiple origins? Mm -hmm. Yes, indeed. So the uh, virus origins and virus evolution, uh, that, that's very interesting, a little bit philosophical question. Uh, nevertheless, uh, as the viruses are uh, extremely diverse, uh, it is likely that they are polyphyletic, um, meaning that they have multiple origins uh, throughout the evolution. And then, uh, generally, uh, studying history uh, of viruses is difficult because they are too small and they don't leave any fossils uh, behind. Uh, so, so we can just um, like have some uh, some theories and infer things from uh, trying to find out relationships uh, amongst viruses. So um, one of the uh, like possible, uh, or th there are several uh, theories uh, how viruses may have emerged. Uh, and one of them is that actually the sort of parasitic form of life uh, emerged very early in the evolution of the life itself. Uh, actually, maybe even before uh, the cells, uh, before the life uh, acquired the form of cells. So uh, at the very beginning, there was probably this uh, RNA world uh, of uh, self-replicating molecules. But already at this stage, uh, there, uh, it is possible to envision that there were some molecules that didn't have the ability to copy themselves, but could be copied by other molecules. And this would be exactly this uh, parasitic uh, form of life that is now uh, common to viruses. Uh, another uh, alternative how viruses may have uh, emerged is by simplification of uh, cellular parasites. So uh, we can imagine that there is some uh, like cellular form uh, that is uh, that becomes intracellular parasite of another organism, and then uh, it's convenient for, for this parasite to become very simple so that uh, it doesn't uh, impose big burden on the host cell and can be uh, can sort of multiply efficiently. And as this uh, parasitic organism is getting simpler and simpler, uh, it may lose uh, its um, many of its functions and depend just on the host. And eventually we could end up with something uh, as a virus. Uh, and uh, third theory is that uh, viruses emerged as uh, sort of um, uh, like a function of a cell that became a hostile. Uh, so there are these uh, gene transfer agents uh, that are uh, particles that um, enable exchange of genetic material uh, between some, uh, some bacteria. Uh, and these are actually very similar to bacteriophages and may, uh, if, if, if these particles acquire uh, the ability to preferentially uh, transfer the uh, DNA that encodes their functions, uh, they would actually become a uh, bacteriophage. And, and now, uh, like a little bit, to elaborate a little bit more, why basically uh, are viruses not placed on the tree of life, even though they do infect like bacteria, archaea, and eukaryotes, all, all life forms? <laughs> mm -hmm. Well, so uh, <laughs> they are uh, exactly not placed in the tree of life. Um, because they didn't origin, uh, like they do not sh share uh, like the, the same origin uh, with the living creatures. So they do not fit into the tree. Uh, so, so they are like detached, uh, detached branches, let's say. 
So they, yeah. they do not fit into the scheme of the cellular organisms. And how does it make you feel? So, I mean, uh, talking in the same, uh, down the same lines, I mean, the, so the, so the point is that the evolution of species, it doesn't happen like alone. Uh, there is always co-evolution, right? And the same thing should go for both viruses and their hosts. So let's talk a little bit about co-evolution of viruses and hosts. Mm -hmm. Yes. So this is very nice question. Thank you. Uh, so of course there is uh, long co-evolution. So there is arms race between viruses and their hosts. So the the hosts uh, they were forced to develop immune system to defend against viruses, and uh, over the time uh, viruses are developing mechanisms how to neutralize the immune system so that they can infect the host. And there is very advanced warfare. Uh, so like the human immune system is extremely complex. It has many components like the non-specific and specific immunity and this uh, adaptive immunity uh, has, uh, can respond on various levels. Uh, at the same time, uh, viruses uh, carry functions to neutralize the immune response. And as we learned with, uh, with coronavirus, for, for example, the, uh, even though normally our immune response can last for a long time, so with, with uh, the SARS-CoV-2, we are uh, experiencing these uh, reinfections after a relatively short time. So they, they somehow manage to, to avoid the long-lasting immune response. Uh, another uh, example is co-evolution co of bacteriophages and bacteria, where the bacteria developed uh, like so, so far more than 70 identified types of immune system uh, that block the phage infection. Uh, but uh, phages are responding in kind, and in many of them, more than half of the genes inside the phage genome are probably devoted into fighting uh, these immune systems of bacteria. Probably that's the reason why why they exist, right? Because if they won't be able to uh, kind of breach the bacterial immune system, they won't exist anymore. Like yes, absolutely. So, uh, on the other hand, there is also this aspect of viruses contributing to the evolution of the cellular organisms. So, in some uh, rare cases, uh, some genes from, uh, from viruses or bacteriophages uh, become integrated into the host genome and they can provide additional functions. Yeah. So basically also like comment here, this is a way that geneticists nowadays, like they trace also the evolutionary history of viruses especially for those they can be they can be integrated in like genomes and, and and it was interesting like in this encode project that it was released in 2010 if i remember correctly uh where we got to know for example that eight percent of like our genome of human genome it's like it's coming from it has viral uh, origins mm -hmm. but um if if we focus a little bit on prokaryotes so uh we know that prokaryotes like bacteria and archaea they have an immune system uh, that protects them against viruses, and this is called CRISPR. Mm -hmm. But also we know, it has been also found that basically I think nowadays that uh, viruses possess also anti-CRISPR systems. So could you elaborate a bit on this kind of like systems and how did they co-evolve? Briefly, maybe. maybe. Mm -hmm. Yes, so, so the uh, CRISPR-Cas uh, systems, so that's a type of adaptive immunity for bacteria. So mm -hmm. um, when, when infected, uh, the bacteria can uh, take a segment of the infected bacteriophage and incorporate it into their genome. And then they have a system that will uh, target this sequence. So whenever the bacteria is infected by this phage, it will uh, cleave its genome uh, before the phage can establish the infection. And that's how the bacteria is protected. And uh, this is carried over. Uh, to the uh, bacterial progeny, so, so the future generations are also protected. So that, that's very nice for bacteria, but of course uh, bacteriophages uh, develop uh, um, various approaches to avoid this uh, this mechanism. So, so they can uh, have special proteins that will interfere with function of this uh, CRISPR system, or they try to mutate away, so they do not contain the sequences that are targeted by this system. Uh, and yeah, indeed, this is a complex arms race. So um, another uh, example that we benefited from, because the CRISPR-Cas uh, system is now becoming a tool in molecular biology, 
uh, but uh, even better established tools are restriction enzymes. So these are actually uh, also results of the arms race between uh, bacteriophages and uh, bacteria, where the bacteria developed uh, enzymes that will target specific sequences, which are not in the bacterial genome. And then uh, the phages are developing various uh, mechanisms to avoid this degradation, for example, by modifying their uh, nucleic acids. I think that's a good example of um, co uh, or the evolutionary arms phase. But then once we are talking about co-evolution, we can also talk about uh, gene transfer agents and uh, like in prokaryotes specifically. Mm -hmm. um, and one of the study that you guys did, which was this gene transfer agents and of uh, rhodobacter. So uh, if you can please discuss. Mm -hmm. So uh, yes, thank you. Uh, so we looked at the gene transfer agent, uh, which is basically a particle that in structure uh, looks very similar to a small bacteriophage. Uh, and uh, it's called uh, extracellular organelle. So how do the uh, rhodobacter uh, bacteria use it? Uh, so when uh, there is this like population of cells and they start to be in unfavorable conditions, for example, they start to starve. Um, they have a system that uh, detects the cell density. And then in the population, about 1% of cells, they decide to commit a suicide uh, in a controlled way. So they will start producing these gene transfer agents, and then the bacteria will segment their own genome and package uh, small segments of it into this gene transfer agent. And then this DNA uh, is delivered into the bacterial bacteria that are around. And um, Probably this helps uh, the bacteria to survive because it enables recombination uh, of DNA from different bacteria. Um, and by this recombination, the bacteria may gain new function that will enable it to survive uh, in the environment, like to utilize new uh, source of carbon or some other element uh, or some source of energy. Uh, so this, uh, these systems are actually very common uh, among bacteria living in oceans. Okay, so, so far you have, I think, given us a lot of information about viruses. Could you please tell us how widespread viruses really are? Just to have so, an, an idea. <laughs> yes, so <laughs> viruses are indeed very uh, widespread. So, so first we can look at bacteriophages. So uh, many of us uh, <laughs> acknowledge the fact that uh, like bacteria are everywhere. They are on all sorts of surfaces. And when we want to prepare food, we need to wash it and clean it, not to not to get infected. Uh, however, of course, uh, these bacteria um, can be and are infected by bacteriophages. So it means that the phages are basically everywhere where the bacteria can be, and it's everywhere. Mm -hmm. uh, but the good thing is that, uh, as we uh, discussed at the very beginning, um, the phages are quite specific. So, so they do not only <laughs> infect many uh, bacterial species, but they, they pose no danger to us. So if we eat them, uh, it's just extra protein and extra <laughs> extra DNA. Uh, and when looking at uh, sort of um, higher eukaryotes uh, like us, uh, so uh, each species uh, can be infected by uh, many types, uh, many species of viruses. So, uh, and those are produced in millions and billions uh, in the infected organism. There are many virus particles around. Cool. So it, it seems like we live in a cloud in a cloud of viruses, <laughs> if, yes. if we could say. So okay. the yeah. virologists are happy to say that we live in virosphere. Uh, <laughs> ah, but, yeah. Cool. <laughs> so, so whenever we say that I have a gut feeling or something, it may be just bacteriophages infecting uh, gut bacteria or something. So, <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, there, there are some studies, of course. Uh, that, that show that the gut bacteria are very important to determine uh, many aspects of our life, like how healthy we are, uh, even mm -hmm. maybe impact our moods. Uh, but um, those populations of bacteria in our gut are controlled by uh, phage infections. So th this way, uh, even the phages can have some impact on our life. Uh, okay, so now that we have the basic information about viruses, let's let's focus on viruses infecting humans. And, and we know that many human diseases are caused by viruses from like common flu to fatal diseases, right? Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, so one problem here is that we cannot target viruses with uh, antibiotics like how we do how we are dealing with bacteria. And also we do have a lot of antibiotics, but not drugs for uh, to, to deal with viruses. So why is it like that? And basically, which are the therapeutic strategies that we can use to mm-hmm. to, 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 to deal basically with viruses? Mm-hmm. So uh, generally, uh, antivirals are a bit more difficult to develop than antibiotics um, because viruses are simple and for their replication, they use cellular functions, uh, which of course cannot be targeted uh, because mm-hmm. we would kill the uh, the host cell. Yeah. Uh, so, and there's another aspect that uh, bacteria differ in many aspects uh, of their life from uh, from humans. Uh, so, so there are a uh, number of bacterial functions uh, that can be targeted that will not affect humans. Mm-hmm. So, so for uh, antibiotics, we have quite a few targets in bacteria, but for viruses, we have only few functions that are executed by the virus that can be that can be targeted. And a typical target uh, that is valid for all viruses uh, is the enzyme that enables replication of the virus genome. Uh, so th- this this can be targeted by uh, analogs of nucleotides. So often uh, we take advantage of the fact that the viral replication proteins um, do not have the proofreading activity. So we can uh, provide analog of a nucleotide that is then incorporated into the virus genome. Uh, but because of the like, proofreading uh, abilities of the human uh, replicases, uh, this is not incorporated into the human genome. So then uh, this will induce uh, excessive mutation of the viral genome and the virus population will collapse. Uh, and there can be uh, numerous uh, other targets. So. Uh, the viruses, for example, can carry uh, specific proteases, uh, proteins that will cleave other viral proteins to enable maturation of the viral particles. So one very famous uh, target is the protease of HIV uh, that is tar- targeted by numerous uh, successful antivirals. Yeah, this is really interesting. So if we, I mean, of course, we can do all that. And the other thing is that simply prevention is better than cure. So what what are those prevention strategies that we can use? Mm-hmm. So, yes, prevention is usually cheaper <laughs> and, and better <laughs> than, than curing the curing the disease. Uh, so, very strong uh, tool that we have uh, is vaccination, of course. Uh, so, uh, and vaccination has been developed against many viruses, uh, and we uh, take advantage of the fact that actually our uh, immune system is uh, predisposed to react very strongly uh, to virus particles. So when we have a viral particle, uh, it's made from the capsid protein that is actually repeated at least 60 times uh, over the viral surface. And our immune system is uh, designed to react very aggressively against these repetitive surfaces. So one uh, approach to produce uh, the vaccines uh, is to have uh, particles of a virus that do not contain the genome for example, uh, that are then injected into the uh, uh, vaccinated individual, and the immune uh, system will learn how to react to these particles and then uh, protect the uh, protect against infection by the by the real virus. There are other uh, other approaches to to develop vaccines as well. And now, if if we may ask, like, how does your work contribute in finding um, therapeutics therapeutics that target viruses? Okay, so my group is uh, focused on basic research. So we are uh, characterizing the structure of viruses. So we can use cryo-electron uh, microscopy to determine the structure of the virus with atomic resolution, uh, which means basically we know where individual amino acids are. Uh, and this structure can serve for design of some compounds that will bind to the, uh, to the viral particle and, for example, prevent it from opening. Uh, so uh, with these small compounds attached, the viruses will not be able to induce infection. Um, and other uh, contribution is that we look at how these particles infect the host cells. So we describe the mechanism that, that the viruses use to enter the cell and to deliver the genome into the cytoplasm. And uh, again, uh, this may open uh, possibilities to uh, block this process and thus prevent the virus infection.
since we were discussing about uh, antibiotic resistance, etc., and viral particles being a great delivery tool, and from your work, I mean, the structures of viruses, they are also a good portal to understand alternative uh, ways of uh, targeting some diseases, right? So uh, one of the therapy, which uh, again, I remember, and you also work on it, is phage delivery. Mm -hmm. uh, so, uh, how does this phage therapy? Uh, how does this method works? And what are the different phages that you are using? Using or if there are different approaches? Mm -hmm. So, yeah, indeed, when phages were discovered, which is uh, about a hundred years ago, uh, the scientists immediately realized that they be they may be used to cure uh, bacterial diseases. There were initial attempts to use them for this purpose. However, later uh, antibiotics were discovered and they uh, became the primary um, therapeutic option. Uh, now with the onset of common uh, antimicrobial resistance, the phages are coming into interest again. And the uh, idea is that uh, when a phage replicates in a bacteria, uh, it, it kills it. Uh, and that's the way to eliminate bacteria even from uh, human organism. Mm -hmm. uh, so, uh, in this direction, uh, we are studying bacteriophages uh, that infect uh, Staphylococcus aureus and uh, Pseudomonas aeruginosa, uh, which are two human pathogens. And um, uh, our aim uh, is to describe how uh, phages infect uh, individual bacterial cells and how they efficiently produce the phage progeny. But also uh, in the human body, uh, when the bacteria cause infection, they uh, often form biofilm, uh, which is like a, a surface layer covered by, covered by bacteria that are uh, embedded in so-called extracellular matrix that they produce. And this uh, matrix uh, protects the bacteria from the immune system. But bacteriophages, because they uh, co-evolved with the bacteria, uh, as, as we discussed, so bacteriophages, they developed mechanisms how to infect bacteria even inside biofilm. So uh, the aim is to uh, sort of identify bacteriophages and describe the mechanisms that uh, enable them to efficiently infect bacteria in biofilm. And yeah, it's great that at least now we can use like phage therapy as a solution uh, to, to tackle the problem of antibiotic resistance, as you nicely uh, mentioned. Uh, so now, another now promising use of viruses is in cancer therapy. So uh, can you introduce us to the uh, novel therapies uh, that are uh, using basically viruses as anti-cancer agents? Mm -hmm. Well, so, so I would describe uh, like two things. Mm -hmm. uh, so, uh, so viruses can uh, help uh, like with uh, development of vaccines. So because they uh, provide this uh, repetitive surface, so we, we can uh, attach uh, like specific, uh, let's say, proteins or epitopes uh, to the surface of the virus particle. And then when these particles are uh, used for vaccination, uh, they will trigger a strong immune response uh, against the epitopes, the proteins that we added to the uh, surface of the virus particle. So uh, in this way, uh, viruses can help us with uh, development of vaccines. But uh, also uh, the virus particles uh, can be targeted uh, against the cancer cells. So th this can take uh, even advantage of the fact that uh, the vi viruses uh, have properties to efficiently replicate in the uh, in the cancer cells uh, and thus uh, kill them. So it's a it's a combination of these uh, properties to be like uh, targeted to the uh, cancer cells and then uh, el to eliminate them. Yeah. So. I mean, another important uh, use of viruses can be, uh, especially in genetic diseases. You know, I mean, we were talking about CRISPR, and CRISPR is increasing uh, in a way to um, to edit the genome of the you know newborns or even like uh, at the embryo stage uh, mm -hmm. to to kind of uh, remove the the genes which are problematic or which uh, may cause a genetic disease. Mm -hmm. So how uh, we can use viral particles in this gene therapy? Uh, yes. So during evolution, uh, the virus particles developed uh, to be able to uh, enter into cell and to uh, deliver the genetic information that is inside. So uh, this can be taken advantage of, uh, as you mentioned, by replacing the viral genome inside 
uh, with some specific information that we want to deliver into the cell. Um, so in this way, the viral capsids uh, become a tool uh, in, in the development of therapeutics. So it's not only necessarily about uh, removing some solar function, uh, the viral particles can also deliver uh, like the desired uh, information, genetic information that is missing in cells of the affected individual. So, so just a comment here, basically. Um, I think we, we tend to view viruses only as disease-causing agents in general. And indeed, they, they are responsible for a lot of disease, like uh, in humans, plants, and animals. But also, from our discussion, we understand that there exist potential benefits that viruses, viruses can provide to their hosts. And initially, we talk about like the co-evolution of virus and, the, and their hosts, and so the diversity and how basically viruses, they promote like diversity, one stuff. And now also uh, we discuss about basically uh, how viruses contribute to human health, like how we can use them in different ways to uh, tackle diseases and et cetera. Yeah, the other uh, use can be in the ecological and environment sense that the since we, we were talking about co-evolution and viruses do infect bacteria, archaea, fungi. So how, how basically viruses, they, um, they are important for ecology and mm -hmm. uh, how do uh, they affect the biogeochemical cycles? Mm -hmm. So yes, so uh, viruses <laughs> can, uh, can have uh, the form, for example, of like uh, biopesticides. So, so they could be used uh, to control populations of some pests. Uh, in quite a natural way, but uh, what you are asking about if uh, whether the viruses can have significant uh, impact on our planet. So indeed, uh, they can. Uh, so for example, uh, the algae that grow in the ocean, uh, so they can uh, in some cases grow into very high uh, population densities uh, by and by that they will even change color of the seawater. Uh, and this uh, affects how much heat from the sun is absorbed by the ocean. And uh, so, so when the algae grow, uh, uh, after a, a few weeks, uh, this, this, it's called the bloom, uh, this algal bloom uh, is terminated by uh, some virus infection. Uh, because if there are, uh, if the hosts are plentiful, uh, eventually there will be some virus that will be able to infect all these cells. And the, the whole bloom uh, that can cover like, um, hundreds of square kilometers, even thousands of square kilometers uh, is terminated by the uh, virus infection. And then, uh, of course, like the <laughs> bodies or remnants of the dead algae uh, sink to the bottom, uh, which will uh, remove uh, nutrients uh, and also um, like carbon dioxide in the form of calcite uh, from the atmosphere and from the sea environment. And this, uh, this in, turn, uh, in turn further affects the climate. It affects what then? Uh, it affects climate. A climate, <laughs> yes. yes. Yeah, so, so now basically you describe like the, um, the example of Emiliania Huxley, this algae, and how it's being infected uh, by um, a giant virus, I think it's called Ficotna virus, something, mm -hmm. if I'm correct. Okay, and, and if I understood correctly, so it's like, um, Carbon fixation by Emiliania uh, blooms is an atmospheric carbon dioxide sink, right? Or no? I... Uh, so, so, so uh, yeah, indeed, over the history, uh, so, so this, to, to explain it a little bit more. So, uh, Emiliania Huxley is, um, uh, is an algae uh, that produces uh, coccolids, which are uh, calcite disks. Uh, that covers surface of, of this uh, of this algae, um, and over like millions of years, uh, these uh, calcium discs uh, they detach from the cells, or when the cell die, they will sink to the uh, ocean bottom, and then they uh, accumulate in huge quantities and basically transform into limestone. Mm -hmm. And the calcite disc, uh, so uh, they for the algae to produce the calcite, it uses calcium and then uh, carbon dioxide, uh, which is fixed in this form and indeed uh, removed from the atmosphere. 
Yeah, this is this is interesting. And when we are thinking about existence of viruses, I mean, and they do infect other hosts. So how do they exist in like in the extreme conditions? I mean, the fact that some archaea they can exist like even at minus or even at eighty degrees or even at lower temperatures. So how do they survive these extreme conditions? Yes. So from the studies, it turns out that whenever they are living cells, uh, the viruses will follow. So even uh, cells that live in uh, extreme conditions, like 80 degrees and very acid environment, like pH 2 or even lower, uh, they can be infected by, uh, by viruses or bacteriophages. And then um, the, the phages, they adapt to these conditions by having uh, very, stable, uh, very stable particles. So mm -hmm. the, uh, the capsids, they can indeed withstand these extreme conditions. And they, uh, they can do this by uh, strengthening the interactions between the capsid proteins. So in, uh, in some, some of these bacteriophages, for example, they will have, uh, they will have the, uh, the proteins, the capsid proteins connected in the rings, uh, like the chain, uh, chain armor, chain mail armor of the ancient knights. That's fascinating. And uh, so, I mean, so thinking about, you know, the existing, the viruses existing in this extreme environment and uh, like even in your work, you've shown that, for example, change in pH may kind of collapse the viral particles, etc. cetera. Uh, so then how, for example, they have to be, so the, the capsid should be too strong to even like avoid these kind of, even like to avoid some small changes in the environment. And also, what about like the, the the pressure exerted by the genome, you know, which also you kind of talk about in your work. Mm -hmm. So the virus capsid has to uh, complete uh, like two basic functions. It has to be able to protect the uh, virus genome uh, in the environment, which can be more difficult in this extreme environment. But also, uh, it needs to be able to ensure that the genome is delivered into the host cell uh, to initiate the infection. Mm -hmm. And um, the viruses just ha have to have both these functions, otherwise they would not, uh, would not survive. And then um, this uh, delivery of the genome into the host cell can be uh, mediated by various mechanisms. That, that's what we discussed before. Uh, so, for example, for the bacteriophages in these uh, extreme environments, uh, the capsid itself can be very stable because the genome is delivered through the uh, through the tail. So, so, the, so the head doesn't need to disassemble; it, it can be very stable. But uh, for viruses that infect our cells, um, so usually the the viral particles particle will be engulfed by the cell uh, and then delivered into the endosome, and then it needs to reach the cytoplasm. In, in that case, the virus particle needs to be able to sense uh, that it's inside the cell. The capsid then needs to open to release the genome. And the viruses can have various mechanisms for that. So, for example, they can sense uh, changes in pH uh, because the endosomes are acidified, but also changes in ion composition because the composition of the uh, solution outside of the cell and inside of the cell is different. Uh, there are different ions. So th this... Uh, change in the ion composition can trigger um, like decrease of the interaction of the strength of the interactions between the capsid proteins yeah and another um, work that you you are doing is uh, on honeybee viruses so why do you study them why do we study them uh, well uh, so when i was deciding what projects to tackle in my group i was kind of looking at um, uh, important viruses, uh, and it turns out that um, like the population of honeybees uh, is suffering from uh, numerous uh, virus infections. So like almost all honeybees that exist uh, around are uh, infected, not with just one virus, but multiple viruses. Uh, and uh, it's the virus infections that are causing uh, collapses of the bee colonies, uh, in particular uh, in, in winter. Uh, yes, and then um, uh, I realized that none of these viruses were characterized before, uh, so the structures were completely unknown. Uh, and also um, in, in Brno, uh, where uh, I work, so there is this tradition of Mendel, and at uh, Mendel University in Brno, they have an epidemiology department where they study honeybees. 
So I found a very good collaborator, uh, Docent Antonin Přidal, uh, who could uh, help us with production of the uh, honeybee viruses, uh, which is difficult because there are no tissue cultures that could be used for the honeybee virus production. So we have to use pupae. Uh, we have to infect individual pupae and then use them for uh, isolation of these viruses. And this, uh, this enabled the subsequent structural studies. Um, okay, uh, so we also have, I think in one question you have already answered, but we have like some two questions, I think like out of curiosity, it's like if we can characterize them a little bit speculative questions. Uh, so do viruses encode uh, genes with a known function? Especially uh, these like giant viruses that you're studying and where I think we don't know much about them, right? What do they bring in their genome? And yes, indeed. So the, the more complex virus, the, the longer ge the genome, the more functions uh, it carry. And um, yeah, as we discussed at the very beginning, so some viruses we understand quite well. Uh, these are mostly the like human pathogens and simple viruses. But some uh, bacteriophages or some of these giant uh, viruses that you mentioned, uh, they can uh, have the genomes uh, as, as long as several uh, mega, uh, like mega base pairs, mm -hmm. uh, and they can encode hundreds of proteins. So many of these will be uncharacterized. Uh, and with completely unknown function, uh, it doesn't mean that uh, they are not important for the virus. It's just that for, for now, we do not know uh, why they are important. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah, so the next question is, I think it's quite philosophical. Most asked question probably about viruses. So are viruses alive? Uh -huh. But, but so you the, already started, you know, from this question, yeah, <laughs> which is our last one. <laughs> Yes, so, so th this is more like philosophical question, uh, because viruses certainly do not care whether they are alive <laughs> or not, but uh, for the human definition. So, mm, so in my view, uh, viruses are alive uh, at the stage when they infect the host cell, because when a virus infects the host cell, uh, the cell usually doesn't have a very bright future ahead of it. Uh, it will serve just production of the virus progeny. And uh, at this stage, uh, the virus will take all the cell resources for producing uh, new particles. And I think it can be considered to be alive. When it exists as the individual virion, the virus particle, then uh, it doesn't have uh, many attributes of life. Okay. Um, now, it's just like uh, one more question. So what still our technology lacks? I mean, what we still can't, can't answer in the field of virology? Mm -hmm. So, with the current development in cryo-EM and with the many previous studies by X-ray crystallography, uh, the structure of individual virus particles uh, has been characterized in, in great detail. So, we understand fairly well this uh, extracellular stage of the virus, but then uh, when a virus infects a cell, uh, the situation becomes uh, extremely complex. So, even if it is a simple virus, uh, it in, uh, interacts with thousands of various uh, proteins and functions uh, inside of the infected cell, and it needs to take control of the of the host cell. And um, yeah, th this is without uh, distinction. We never uh, understand this uh, completely for any virus, even the most studied ones. So there is still plenty to learn. Okay, good. Yeah, and and what is your favorite virus? What's my favorite virus? Uh, so uh, I have to say that my favorite viruses are bacteriophages uh, because they are uh, like beautiful uh, molecular machines. So um, in, in the evolution, uh, they gain the ability to infect bacteria uh, using their tail. So, so in particular, the tailed bacteriophages, mm -hmm. uh, which actually can uh, contract and they have various uh, devices to attach to the bacteria and to drill through their surface layers. And, and okay, now that we close uh, the session, uh, if we may ask you, uh, do you have any suggested literature for us and also the audience, other than, of course, your lab's uh, publication? So, so, so th there is one article that I'd like to uh, 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 recommend, uh, that is by Casper uh, and uh, Klu. Mm -hmm. And it, um, basically, uh, it's not an experimental paper, but uh, it provides reasoning uh, why 
uh, viruses will have uh, icosahedral or helical symmetry. So it's in the early days when the electron microscopy wasn't um, like strong enough to really resolve mm -hmm. the details of the virus particles. But just by thinking about the viral genomes and how the particles look like, uh, they, uh, they determined that they will have uh, icosahedral symmetry because it uh, enables efficient use of the coding capacity of the viral genome uh, to, to create a protein protective shell. I think it's it's quite fascinating and uh, all this like to talk about viruses to get to know about like like how do they work and etc it's 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 amazing and uh, i mean alive or not alive they certainly impact our lives and the life of the planet exactly so i think with that thank you so much for accepting the invitation and shedding the light on uh, our crucial part of our life on viruses through your work so thank you so much. Thanks yeah. a lot, Pavel. Thank you very much. Uh, this was a pleasure. Thank you.